KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego Art Power is presenting Indian fusion band Red Bharat, mixing Indian bhangra rhythms, hip-hop, and funk music, March 23rd at the Epstein Family Amphitheater. Tickets and information about upcoming concerts and events at artpower.ucsd.edu. How a cyber attack is affecting Scripps Health. This, this could be going on for, for weeks, months, years in terms of uh, these, these hackers and these attackers, you know, slowly collecting data. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. This is KPBS Midday Edition. The end to a countywide program that criminalized parents and children in need. For, for too long, the, the county has been um, extending a, a closed hand uh, or a fist uh, to people who need this help, and, and now it's going to be more of an open hand. A roadblock to tribal land expansion is removed, and the connection between rap and religion in an excerpt from the Parker Edison Project. That's ahead on Midday Edition. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. Hackers are exposing vulnerabilities in two industries today, healthcare and energy. A possible spike at the pump could be coming soon after a ransomware attack shut down a main fuel pipeline for the East Coast. And here locally, Scripps Health, one of San Diego's largest healthcare providers, was also the target of a ransomware attack last week, and they are still trying to recover. It's been reported the hack has forced doctors and nurses to monitor and log patient care offline, meaning with pen and paper. The hack is also reportedly disrupting communication with patients and access to medical records. KPBS health reporter Matt Hoffman joins us now with more. Matt, welcome. Hey, Jade. So you reported on Friday that the cyber attack on Scripps Health continues. Anything new today? I mean, do we even know what systems are down? Right. So the cyber attack is still ongoing. We're more than a week into this. The scripts.org uh, website uh, is still down. There's a new message posted on there that at least says that we're unavailable. Uh, they're directing people to a number to call. But, um, you know, as this sort of grows here, uh, we're hearing from a lot of very frustrated patients that some of their critical care is being delayed. Now, it is important to note too, Jade, that um, Scripps officials do say that, um, you know, some surgery, some procedures are still going. They are still open, um, even though we're hearing that a lot of things are being uh, delayed, canceled or or, or push back. And as you mentioned, you've been in communication with uh, Scripps representatives. Are they offering any information on which of their systems have been affected or what patients should do if they can't get scheduled treatment? Yeah, so Scripps officials, um, uh, at least from my perspective, are being a little bit tight-lipped on details. Now, the last update that they gave us officially was on Wednesday, and that's when they had sort of said that, um, you know, this is still ongoing. We're working around the clock. We've contracted with this cybersecurity firm to help address this issue and bring our systems back online. Now, we're not hearing from Scripps. They're not saying, they're not confirming if this is a ransomware attack, and we are seeing some other reporting um, that's saying that this is a ransomware attack, like a situation where um, their data has been stolen, and then uh, somebody's saying, hey, you need to give us money or else we will not give it back to you. It's definitely a, a, a bad, bad security breach. Are they saying why they're being so tight-lipped about details? 
you know, they, they say that they're sharing info as they can and as they are able to. If you go like on their Facebook, like there's a lot of people frustrated. They're, they are responding back on social media saying, you know, hey, call this number. They're giving them a 1-800 number to call, you know, to help reschedule appointments. Um, and I'm, you know, talking to some patients, sort of getting different varying results. You know, some people aren't even able to contact like their primary care doctors. Um, some people are able to contact their primary care doctors. Some people are having some uh, success in, in the rescheduling, but others are not. So it seems really, really hit and miss. So what ha- what's happening when, say, uh, someone's in an accident who would ordinarily be taken to Scripps Memorial? I mean, what's the impact on emergency rooms, uh, even at, U- at UCSD and Sharp? Yeah, so last week we heard from both those two healthcare giants um, that they were seeing um, an increase in admissions to their emergency departments. And uh, Sharp Healthcare officials saying that's because Scripps Health is on bypass in their emergency departments, really um, that you know showing how deep this hack is going here. Now, Scripps officials and county health officials would not confirm that the Scripps hospitals were on bypass in the emergency departments, even though we heard we are hearing that from some of the other healthcare organizations. And county officials last week were describing it as a very you know developing situation. Hmm. Uh, a few agencies have been called in to investigate this. Who are they and what exactly are they trying to figure out at this point? Right. So we, we know that the FBI is aware and they won't you know comment as of last week in terms of specifics on the investigation. But they do say that, you know, regularly when these sort of attacks happen, uh, that they give advice to the private sector um, before and after. So uh, we don't know a ton about locally, but we do know that federal officials are definitely looking into this. And Matt, it appears from what facts have sort of dribbled out so far that Scripps is not paying a ransom or providing whatever the attackers want, as you've mentioned, but uh, they are instead trying to restore their systems. How big of a task would that be? I mean, have they first even been able to assess the extent to which systems have been hacked? You know, talking to a cybersecurity expert, Jay, it's a very, very large task. I mean, basically, he was saying they have to go machine by machine um, and sort of clear out the malware, make sure that there's no malware on the computer. Um, because in, in terms of, you know, we know that they first discovered this, you know, more than a week ago uh, over the weekend. Uh, but this this could be going on for for weeks, months, years in terms of uh, these these hackers and these attackers, you know, slowly collecting data, uh, slowly uh, attacking the system here. So this could be a process of weeks, months, uh, or although it could be resolved fairly quickly. Are hacks of health systems and hospitals common? I don't know if the word is common, but they are happening more and more. Um, and, and we see them in these sort of ransomware scenarios where they're taking some very, very important data. And if these hospital systems don't have good backups, then they may have to pay it. And what about the California Department of Public Health? What kind of role are they taking here? Yeah, they say that they are closely monitoring the situation. And basically, you know, they're monitoring the the whole critical care delivery system here, you know, especially if those emergency departments are diverting patients, they say that they can step in if they need to, you know, and sort of, you know, be boots on the ground. Um, But they said that they don't need to do that yet. I've been speaking with KPBS health reporter, Matt Hoffman. Matt, thank you very much. Thanks, Jade. San Diego County Supervisors last month ended a controversial program that had survived criticism and court challenges for more than two decades. Project 100% was the county's effort to detect public assistance fraud through a process of unannounced home inspections. County workers could examine at will the condition and contents of a recipient's home and determine unilaterally whether public assistance was valid. It was the only welfare fraud program with such broad powers in the country. An examination by the San Diego Union Tribune has found that the inspections had a traumatizing effect on people who 
lived through them, and they were not as effective at finding fraud as the county claimed. Joining me is San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Greg Moran. Greg, welcome. Hi, Maureen. Nice to be here. Now, Project 100% was put in place by the San Diego County Board of Supervisors back in 1997, a time when politicians were trying to end welfare as we know it, quote unquote. So what was the stated goal of this project when it went into effect? Um, the goal of this program was, at the time, the, the, the big complaint against uh, welfare programs that had really started in 1980 with Ronald Reagan was that there was an enormous amount of fraud going on, that people were getting benefits who shouldn't get them. Um, here in San Diego, a lot of the focus of that was on uh, uh, allegations that many illegal immigrants, people who didn't have legal status in the country, were getting uh, welfare benefits, food stamps, and so forth. So the idea was that they were going to catch fraud before it occurred by um, scrutinizing applications uh, and putting everyone uh, uh, through this uh, home search or home visit process. And what were the county inspectors allowed to do during these home inspections? These were, the program started out, they were investigators from the district attorney's offices, so they were peace officers. They didn't have a warrant, they didn't have any court permission or anything, but they were allowed to uh, and were required to show up uh, at the homes of people who had applied for public assistance, Um, not people who were suspected of defrauding public assistance, but people had simply applied. And they uh, had a kind of a basic routine. They would interview the person, uh, asking them questions that, frankly, the person had already answered in in, uh, applying initially for the benefits. Um, And then they uh, looked through the home. Um, And that included a thorough search of everything, closets, drawers, medicine chests, refrigerators, bathrooms, bedrooms, looking for evidence, I suppose you would say, of fraud or some sort of deception in the information that had been given for the application. Now, you spoke with one woman who was so moved by the vote to end Project 100% that she cried. What did she tell you about what those inspections were like? Uh, This was a a woman uh, who was in San Diego in 2001. She had fled an abusive domestic uh, situation in Colorado. And to this day, uh, 20 years later, uh, when I interviewed her on the telephone, twice she broke down crying. And at one point she said, it makes your stomach hurt just thinking about it. And I think what she was referring to and what she said she was referring to was not just the humiliation of having to go through this, both of having somebody root through your stuff, but also the idea that you were suspected of being deceptive and lying um, was very humiliating. But it was also the anxiety of the process. You know, these were unannounced home visits. They didn't tell you when they were coming. They didn't tell you uh, what day of the week or what hour of the day. It could be anywhere between 8 a.m. and 5 p.m. So you were really, if you were one of the people who was up trying to get these benefits, which you needed, you know, to feed your children or pay your rent or whatever, you know, there was this constant anxiety that when you had to go out to do an errand, go to the grocery store, drop your kids off at school, take your kids to a doctor appointment, go to yourself for a job interview, that you would miss the investigator. And if uh, they would come twice to try to do this home visit, uh, if you miss the second time, 
your application was rejected and you had to start the process all over again. So th this was a woman who is off public assistance, you know, is uh, had a successful career, is now retired. But this was a vivid and a searing memory for her that to this day angers her and, and really saddens her. One reason the program lasted as long as it did was because the county claimed it had a 25% success rate in finding fraud. But that was not true, was it? It was not. Um, back in 2014, um, there was a report that was done by a, a, a lawyer, a, a woman named Hilda Chan. She uh, collected an enormous amount of information from the county uh, about this program. Uh, there had also been other information she used that had been developed in a lawsuit that had been filed uh, in federal court uh, to try to overturn the program and was not successful. She went through all this information and realized and proved that the uh, county had been exaggerating the effectiveness of the program and that, that this 20 25% fraud detection or cost avoidance figure was uh, not true. And that was because of how they were sort of categorizing what was fraud detection. So she uh, got all this together, presented it to the county, and the county didn't quarrel with it. They said, oh, yeah, you're right. You know, we have been exaggerating this. And after about 2015-16, they, they recategorized what they were doing, and lo and behold, the amount of fraud that they said they were detecting went from 25% to the most recent figure I could find was down to 6%. So it had been, you know, frankly, wildly exaggerated for almost 20 years. Now, who was it on the present Board of Supervisors who worked to get this program ended? Well, you know, for the story, I, I interviewed uh, uh, Supervisor Tara Lawson-Reamer, um, and she, uh, I think, had made the motion to get rid of this, was backed by uh, uh, Supervisor Vargas as well. Um, you know, but I think what, what it was, was the, the kind of the new working majority on the board of uh, those two women and uh, Chairman Nathan Fletcher, which are, all three of which are, are left of, of center, progressive, however you want to, more liberal, however you want to put it, you know, that those where the three key votes, there was a majority um, on the board to get rid of this program that just really did not exist before. I mean, they, this thing was going on for, you know, what, 24 years, really, um, and two lawsuits and uh, a lot of uh, information, the report I just mentioned, pointing out the flaws in the program. You know, that report also pointed out that the cost the county was putting out every year for these investigators and to detect fraud was about a million six, a million seven a year, and they were detecting a few hundred thousand dollars a year at most. It was a, a money losing thing. They never really moved the board to to change much, uh, and it was it was not until really the I think it's the last two election cycles where these three uh, you know more board seats opened up and you had this kind of working majority on the board that not only targeted this program but I think overall and I think you're going to see this in in the coming months has a much different approach and attitude towards public benefits and 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 serving the the, the county's needy population than previous boards did. Yeah, isn't part of the county's move to eliminate Project 100%, isn't that also aimed at making enrolling for public assistance less complicated? 
Yes, very much so. Uh, and, and, and that in itself is kind of, a, not kind of, but, but is a, a, a new direction for the board. You know, I think a couple of years ago, there was a, a study that came out that showed, you know, a lot of people in San Diego County who are eligible for these benefits don't even bother to apply. Now, there are probably a number of reasons for that, but one of them is, that, you know, the county as a matter of policy, I think, I don't think this is a, a controversial thing to say, you know, was really reluctant to make it easy to access these benefits. It was kind of a political philosophy and a mindset that, you know, um, we don't want to be handing these out left and right. We want to kind of keep a tight rein and, and make sure that we're being efficient and, and we're not being defrauded. Um, I think with this new board majority, there's a 180 from that that is going to say, you know, for, for too long, the, the county has been um, extending a, a closed hand uh, or a fist uh, to people who need this help. And, and now it's going to be more of an open hand that will not only have something in it, but also, you know, a hand to help people up and, and help them help them get going. I've been speaking with San Diego Union-Tribune reporter Greg Moran. Greg, thank you. You're welcome. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota Dealers whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. This is KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Maureen Kavanaugh with Jade Heineman. It's California's big new initiative to fight homelessness. The plan involves using hundreds of billions of dollars in federal and state funds to buy aging motels, hotels, and vacant apartment buildings and turn them into long-term homeless housing. These units often have supportive services on site, like addiction counseling. The initiative is called Project Home Key. Last year, the state awarded San Diego nearly $38 million to buy two hotels to house those struggling with homelessness. The California Report visited one recently converted motel in Los Angeles to see who it's helping. That's where they met Martha Fuentes. This is my home. Welcome to my home. Here we go. Okay, I got my kind clothes scattered here. Martha moved into this home key project last month, a 43-unit converted courtyard motel on a commercial boulevard in L.A.'s El Sereno neighborhood. There's really no way to describe it other than comfortable and me. Other than Martha's collection of stuffed animal dolls and other knickknacks she's put on tables and dressers, it looks pretty much like your standard no-frills budget motel room. But for Martha, who's 65 and was homeless for 10 years before moving here, this place is a sanctuary. We're in my home, okay? Whereas a month ago, if you would have told me I was going to be have my own, I would have told you you were crazy. My home used to be that car parked in the parking lot. That's where I lived prior to this, uh, prior to that in the streets. This is my castle. This is my home, my heaven. This is everything to me. This room is everything to me. It means the world to me. The converted motel where Martha lives is one of 94 Project Home Key sites around the state, where more than 6,000 units of homeless housing will be created. 
An earlier version of the program called Project Room Key started last year. It focused on renting motel and hotel rooms short-term for the homeless as a way to protect them from the pandemic. But then officials started thinking, why rent when we can buy properties and turn them into long-term housing? More than half a billion dollars in federal COVID relief funds, plus state money have been given to cities and counties to purchase properties, often from owners who were eager to sell because their businesses had cratered during the pandemic. The crisis created the opportunity. It's remarkable, actually. And it is the most successful program to date in my 30 years of doing housing for homeless folks that I've seen getting people directly off the streets immediately into decent housing. That's David Grunewald, a vice president of National Core, the nonprofit affordable housing company that redeveloped this L.A. motel. Grunewald says Project Home Key will get thousands of homeless Californians housed more affordably and faster than newly built housing projects. We were up and running in three months. This motel was up and running in three months, and then we were able to house people immediately. A typical affordable housing new construction project for permanent housing could take as long as five to seven years to get up and running. And in the meantime, people are still living on the streets. In L.A., new homeless housing can cost well over half a million dollars a unit. But Project Home Key units are coming in at less than half that amount. Another advantage of putting homeless housing in an existing motel or hotel instead of building something new is that it doesn't spark the same level of backlash from neighborhood groups and homeowner associations. And Miski runs Union Station Homeless Services, which manages this motel-turned-homeless housing project. We didn't have to go through all the pain and agony of getting something built in a community and having all those voices that said, oh, no, 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 not in my backyard. This was kind of just a, hey, we're going to do it. We need to do it. It's an emergency. It was done. And, you know, were some people unhappy? Yes. But for the most part, the community has embraced it. Miski expects the people living in this converted motel and other Project Home Key sites will eventually move into more permanent housing. That'll free up the rooms for new people to move in. Martha Fuentes says she's already starting to think about her future, a future where she never lives on the streets again. You start making a budget, you start saving, you start doing little things to, br- to bring yourself back into society, as they say, normal society, as you call it. But yeah, I would love to save money and have my own place. You know, I want a normal life. But a reminder of the size of California's homelessness crisis and how much more needs to be done is just outside of Martha's room. It's a big homeless encampment right up the street. That was the California Report's host, Saul Gonzalez. For more than two decades, a single piece of San Diego County land law has prohibited 18 federally recognized tribes from expanding their own reservation. That changed last week when the Board of Supervisors voted to change the county's fee-to-trust application process, which enables tribes in the area to purchase back tribal lands. Joining me to discuss the implications of this vote is the chairman of the Rincon Band of Luiseno Indians, Bo Mazzetti. Chairman Mazzetti, welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you. So can you begin by giving us your initial reaction to this vote? Well, my initial reaction was they did what was right. However, adding an additional amendment to the original language, 
was just not necessary. And something that uh, I don't understand what Supervisor Vargas was doing with that, why she needed that. You know, does that just apply when a tribe buys land that everybody gets notified? Or does that apply to everyone that buys land? Well, the surrounding neighbors or property owners get notified. I just don't understand the rationale. Federal law already requires that public notice and input uh, is required. That's under federal law. When a, when a tribe is able to purchase some of their own land back, there's a, a process where the general public has the right to comment. What's been changed, and, and how does it affect the process of land acquisition for tribes in the area? What's been changed is since 1994, Board of Supervisors adopted a resolution that said we shall oppose all purchases of land by tribes in San Diego County. That's what it originally said. But what it turned into is that it's just a blanket opposition for any tribe that may purchase their land back, get some land back. Uh, so the county opposes any and all purchases by tribes. I need to want to make it clear. There's very few of us in this county, tribes, that have the economic ability to even buy back some of our land. And that land has to be made available to be purchased to begin with. Not like we're forcing people to sell us land. <laughs> in addition to amending the fee-to-trust process, the Board of Supervisors also voted to lift certain restrictions on liquor licenses. Can you tell us how that will affect the county's tribes? If a tribe were to secure a liquor license, they would now go through the normal process and be treated like everyone else versus special conditions that were put on when a tribe applied for a liquor license. So now we would be treated like any other uh, individual uh, in the county if we were to secure or go after a liquor license. Tell us more about this fee-to-trust application process. I mean, in effect, tribes have been having to buy back land, which has long been considered culturally sacred. That's correct. We just don't go buy land, say, in the middle of Escondido or any place else. <laughs> what you'll see is the tribes, for the most part, buy land that is their Aboriginal territory or has significant meaning to the tribe. It's not like it, the tribe goes on a, a buying spree. That would happen. So when a tribe is able to buy a, a piece of land that most likely is adjoining or fairly close to their reservation. The process is, first, the land has to be completely paid for. So there is no cloud or no obstacles on the title. Once the land is completely clear of any and all liens or any kind of, there's no cloud on what they call the title. It's, it's a clean title. Then we petition, the tribal petition, the Bureau of Indian Affairs, the Department of the Interior, and the federal government in general, to take this land into trust and make it part of the reservation. Now, what people need to understand, that's the fee-to-trust process. Once the land is taken into trust status, I want to make this clear, the United States government has the title to that land, not that tribe. The United States government owns that land. And the title will read, held in the name of the United States government, for the beneficial use of the name of the tribe, in this case for Rincon, if we purchase some land. That's the way the title operates. This process was a point of contention for tribal leaders for many years. Why do you think it's taken so long to reevaluate it? I don't think the will was there. Uh, tribes are not doing gaming. Tribes, for the most part, are not buying a lot of land, so it was never a big continuing issue. Every once in a while, see, now tribes are just, you got to realize, tribes, maybe within the last 10 years, are just getting, you know, maybe have a gaming facility. 
they're just getting to where, okay, now we can do other things. The first 10 years, we're just concentrating on paying and taking care of your facility, your gaming facility, that business, which is generally what people need to understand. That is our tax base. Since the United States government owns the reservation lands, we can't tax it, let's say tribal government. So our tax base is proceeds from the gaming facilities that run all of our economic development projects, it runs all of our services we have to provide. We provide water, fire, ambulance services. We even pay for two deputies, deputy sheriffs that can go any place in the county. Uh, so those things are, gaming facility is our tax base, if you want to understand that. I've been speaking with Chairman Bo Mazzetti of the Rincon Band of Luisano Indians. Chairman Mazzetti, thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you for the time. I appreciate it. UC San Diego researchers have spelled out the math that explains how pelicans can fly for miles along the coast while barely flapping their wings. KPBS environment reporter Eric Anderson says the information has implications for understanding the warming climate. The top of the bluff just south of the Torrey Pines Golf Course is a special place for those looking to take a leap off a cliff to fly. Inland it heats up and all that cool ocean breeze goes east. Vito Michelangelo is the flight director at the Torrey Pines Glider Port. And that's what creates the magic here for us soaring uh, as paragliding pilots and even the birds. Sometimes we'll sit around and wait for the birds to come out and fly to see exactly how good it is. The grassy field here is a launching pad for hang gliders and model planes, anything that can ride a stiff ocean breeze that's climbing the cliff face. And it's classic. Everybody's seen a bird just kind of circling up in a lift, and that's typically what we do when we're flying, just emulating a bird. And while the paragliders take their cues from birds climbing high above the cliffs, pelicans are using some of the same techniques to gracefully glide along the breaking waves. Pelicans caught the eye of UC San Diego doctoral student Ian Stokes when he used to surf near Santa Barbara. He points to a video of the birds gliding along a breaking wave. So here the wave breaks and they send it up to higher elevation and then they're able to soar back down to the next crest. And there they go. Now they're coming off the wave and they're tracking in. Right, so they're all banking back up, getting off the back and then they're swooping into the next wave and then you see them take off again and they start their ride once again. So they can just really repeat this process. Pelicans take advantage of the same forces at play along the glider port cliff. There, surface wind hits the cliffs and goes up. That creates ideal conditions for paragliders. On the ocean, waves act like the cliff and they move air up as they roll toward the shore. Here comes another showing wave, wave breaks and then they come up and out the back. The pelican's flight highlights a delicate interplay between the ocean and the atmosphere. That exchange of energy between the ocean and the atmosphere is a very prominent driving force in the way that our climate responds to different environmental signals. Scripps Oceanography has a long history of research around the idea of ocean waves and the atmosphere interacting. UC San Diego engineer Drew Lucas worked with Stokes to refine an algorithm that explains the physics of how that system works. It is indeed an equation. What Ian has put together is an equation that relates the form of the ocean wave, its speed, its size, 
and its length, which we call its period or, or, or uh, wavelength, to the amount of wind that is created in the atmosphere. Lucas says the birds tap into this interplay. They harness the energy created when the waves rise and then crest near the shore. He says the ocean and atmosphere are coupled systems that researchers have been studying for years. We're engaged in the business of trying to predict the future of the Earth's climate and the ocean and atmosphere system. And those are problems related to how the ocean and atmosphere are communicating information, energy, um, and, and properties. Lucas says understanding even small mechanisms like the interplay between wind and water helps scientists understand more about the planet. It could also provide input into what might be happening as the oceans and the climate change. Eric Anderson, KPBS News. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman with Maureen Cavanaugh. Last year, Mythic Quest produced a quarantine episode that cleverly used Zoom. The Apple TV Plus series now returns for a second season. KPBS arts reporter Beth Accomando goes behind the scenes to explore the challenges of creating comedy in a pandemic. Last year, Apple TV's series Mythic Quest lifted our spirits with a Zoom quarantine episode that captured what many of us were dealing with. Look at the video icon on the bottom left and then click that. And it did so with a wildly creative flair that inspired us with a sense that we're all in this together. That was cool. Mm. Can we do it again? The goal for season two was to put the pandemic in the rearview mirror, says star and creator Rob McElhenney. And we felt like people were really going to be looking towards their entertainment, certainly their comedies, not necessarily move completely past the last year, yet looking more towards the future optimistically. Actor and executive producer David Hornsby says they created a special bonus episode called Everlight. Which can address and kind of bridge us back into a normal, fun office comedy so we can all kind of get back to normal. Well, we're not gonna figure this out today, so I'm gonna take off. So they tried to write episodes that had little to do with the pandemic, says McElhenney. That said, we were shooting right in the middle of the pandemic and we had to be very cognizant of the fact that it could have been potentially very dangerous. In fact, it was very dangerous and that's why we had very strict protocols all the way through the process. So I've been tested for COVID over 60 times in order to do comedy. I didn't think that my comedy career would lead to so much nasal swabbing, but here we are. Mythic Quest writer and co-creator Megan Gantz says she never expected a comedy show about the gaming industry needing to hire an epidemiologist. Yep, we, we had epidemiologists, we had doctors, we had people standing around with six foot poles that would just walk around and be like, ah, you're too close, you know? And everything changed. When I have a, a joke on set, an alts for a line, and I could just whisper it to Rob and David and get a second read on whether it was funny, now I just had to shout it out like across a room, which is a very vulnerable place to be in. No amount of masking and protection protects you from the silence that occurs when you shout out a joke that nobody likes. The character of Brad, played by actor Danny Pudi, proved well-suited to a pandemic workplace. In some ways, Brad is built for this because he is not giving high fives at work. He's not hugging anyone. 
He is very comfortable in his own space with his hands in his pockets. Mythic Quest looks behind the scenes of creating an epic multiplayer video game. So while epidemiologists were available to offer COVID information, Ubisoft, an actual video game company that's also a show producer, is on hand to provide a different kind of expertise, says Hornsby. They're like uh, being on a medical show and having a doctor on set. Again, Rob McElhenney. We make sure that we speak to people who work in the industry, specifically either at Ubisoft or various other studios, because we want to make sure that it feels authentic to the to the to the gaming experience. And so it's great to work with them. They give us access to so many different things that we would never have access to. And mostly they, they create a certain level of authenticity that we're, we're desperately trying to, to recreate. Sorry to crash your little boys club. Charlotte Nickdow plays Poppy, the game's lead engineer. Yeah, it's very helpful having one of our producers, Jason Altman, on set most days because I have to say a lot of technical jargon. So I feel like we got a lot of takes of me like getting halfway through talking about something and then being like, Jason, was that right? <laughs> and when the series needs to actually show what the characters are creating, they have a real gaming company on board to help produce results, says Gantz. We devise really weird and wonderful things to happen in the video game. And then actual artists build these moments, like uh, have a person digging with a shovel and making crude shapes out of it. Somebody spent a lot of time making that actually work. It's just been the most fantastic partnership. Um, and they are there in the writer's room all the time, and they're really helping us guide the show. Mythic Quest may focus on gaming, but it captures universal truths about both office life and living in a world still dealing with a pandemic. And it does both with clever humor. Beth Accomando, KPBS News. Mythic Quest Season 2 has new episodes drop each Friday on Apple TV+. The KPBS podcast, The Parker Edison Project, zooms way in on what really makes a culture all through the lens of Black America. In the latest episode, Parker Edison speaks to SDSU professor Dr. Roy Whitaker about the connection between rap and religion. You are now listening to The Parker Edison Project. Good morning. Welcome to The Parker Edison Project, where we look at the tenets of culture and things that really make America great. This episode, I get to dive into two subjects I'm very much into, rap and religion. A lot of people don't know that I'm Christian. I was raised Southern Baptist. It's because I don't always feel like arguing the, the points of its validity. It's also because I think some people are just shocked I believe in God. It makes perfect sense to me, though. I mean, if a Porsche just popped up on your lawn tomorrow morning, you'd be a little bit shocked. You'd be even more shocked if it wasn't from an actual source. It was just because two particles of dust smashed into each other and created a perfectly working machine. The Big Bang Theory never quite made sense to me. It doesn't mean it's not real, it just didn't make sense to me. Uh, some of y'all are foaming at the mouth right now. Luckily though, the show doesn't sit completely on that subject. It's about religion as it pertains to rap. Like for instance, the Ghetto Boys and Scarface. They have this, this constant duality that they, they have in their music where even though they're talking some of the most gangster stuff, there's still the, a thread of how the supernatural is there. You look at somebody like Beanie Siegel, known knockout artist, but he breaks his bravado and he shows his remorse and his humanity when acknowledging how he falls short of being a good Muslim. One of the biggest proponents of religion in rap is undoubtedly Chicago's Kanye West. When rap was obsessed with crunk beats and bling, Mr. West brought a voice of virtue with lines like, so here go my single dog, radio needs this, 
that say you can rap about anything except for Jesus. That means God's sex lies videotape. But if I talk about God, my record won't get played. The theme of this episode is rap and religion. So it makes sense that my first guest has articles in both the Journal of Hip Hop Studies as well as the Journal of Contemporary Religion. Dr. Roy Whitaker is an associate professor in the Department for the Study of Religion at San Diego State University. He earned his first master's degree at Princeton Theological Seminary, his second at Harvard. His class is a mix of contemporary text, current events, field trips, and guest speakers. Dr. Whitaker, how are you? I'm blessed. I'm doing very well, brother. Good to be here with you. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to be here uh, to break bread, and it's always good to see you. Um, I'm very happy and thrilled, yet I'm not surprised about your current show on KPBS. There is no one in SD I can think of who is best suited for this medium, and yet perhaps more importantly, this moment than yourself, um, helping bring uh, cultural awareness and cultural diversity to SD and beyond. So the first thing I want to say is uh, I want to salute you and congratulate you on this enterprise that you are embarking on. It's, it's, it's something that's bigger than yourself. And I think you know that. And uh, I think that this will be an important legacy uh, for all of us to be um, ingratiated in. And, uh, and it, it's going to affect a lot of people in positive ways. So I want to thank you for all that you do. And I want to thank KPBS and the larger SDSU community for uh, having you a uh, part of this the good work that you're doing. Thank you. Oh, my goodness. That's an honor. It's true. It's true. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> And you mentioned SDSU, and, and I know you from your, your connection to the topics of, of religion and rap. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about your work? In terms of my work, uh, particularly curriculum development, uh, rap curriculum, and even sort of the evolution of it, what had occurred was back in 2008, I was part of a panel at SDSU called Crisis Carnival. And on this particular panel, I decided to do a paper on rap and religion. If it was pretty well received, I was then very fortunate to get invited to create an entire class on hip hop. I developed a class titled Hip Hop Aesthetics for the Mollus program. The Mollus program is the Master of Arts and Liberal Arts and Sciences program at SDSU. I added one small unit on religion, and I was happy to see that the students were quite interested in it. And then there was a call, call to create a class. Uh, this is for the uh, Weber's Honors College. And so I was able to teach the course about hip hop and religion. But like what inspired you to, to teach in on this subject? I have to give a nod to the love of the arts from my parents. I have to start with them because with them, they gave me the love of Motown. But I come from uh, the love of hip hop culture, I think organically. I, I'm a big fan of Big Daddy Kane, Chubb mm -hmm. Rock. Salt and Pepper, De La Soul. And I try to make it clear in my classes that hip hop is an art too. Hip hop's been around a long time, but scholars have not always looked at hip hop in a serious way. Let me ask you this. Are there similarities between the disciplines of rap and religion? They, I think on the surface, can seem to be polar opposites. And I think that that knee-jerk reaction is fair. But in terms of the similarities, there's, there's a number that I can uh, note. Uh, rap and religion, uh, first comes to mind is the African griot. This is the West African individual who's a genealogist, sort of the person who can um, provide the, the story from the past, the present, and the future of the community. The rapper is, is part of this archetypal uh, framework. They are the modern-day African griot. And I also would note that rap and religion are connected because they are the CNN of the streets. For instance, you turn on NWAs, 
F the police. And then you can get a sort of a read on what's happening with uh, the black community and issues of discrimination, police brutality. Today, you could turn on, for instance, Kendrick Lamar's The Pimp uh, a Butterfly. Here in the lyrics about uh, income inequality, uh, for instance, rap is and even religion for that matter, a way in which we begin to understand what's happening amongst masses of people. There's a stronger argument to make too, and that is in terms of similarities, the other argument is that they are one and the same. Hip hop is a religion. Oh my God. Dang. <laughs> listen to that sit in a little bit. That got me. Y'all here dropping gems, boss. I, I learned from the best, brother. <laughs> 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 you're you're uh you you're mentioning how uh it, it is rap and religion are both uh vehicles of messages it made me think of Pac. there's always the idea that that he's still alive in some place there's kind of this religious connection there and i just want to know if his work registers with religious scholars or how does he weigh in in order to do hip-hop studies we need to go through Pac. I mean, there is, I don't think, any way around it. For me, uh, as I was alluding to earlier, uh, Tupac is not just an urban legend, but an urban prophet. A prophet is simply someone who stands in the place of God, someone who speaks and hears God's message. To me, Tupac represents uh, the paradoxes, the problems, even the possibilities of being a black male in society, the roads that grew from concrete. Um, Tupac talks about, you know, if, you know, did you hear about the roads that grew from the cracking concrete, the sprows? He's going to prove nature's law is wrong. It learned to walk without feet. Funny it seems, he says, but keeping its dreams, it learned to breathe fresh air. Uh, long live the roads that grew from concrete that no one cared. I mean, Tupac is really getting at the idea that, uh, you know, where you come from may not be great, uh, but that doesn't necessarily stop you from becoming great yourself. If somebody doesn't address Tupac at some level, then they've missed an, an important resource in their hip hop studies. My, my favorite part of any day, Dr. Roy Whitaker. Thank you so much, man. <laughs> Thank you, brother. Appreciate this so much. My yeah. pleasure. Yeah. That was an excerpt from the latest episode of the Parker Edison Project. To hear the rest of the episode and other episodes, download the Parker Edison Project podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com.